So I know there are a bunch of utilities who listen to this podcast. I know because I hear from you. And in my conversations with you, I also know that, that there's a lot of trouble with what to do with your data. If that's you, then you should be checking out FiveWorks because FiveWorks helps you go beyond meter data and helps you engage your customers on a way deeper level. FiveWorks personalizes all your digital communication and it helps you reach down to a customer of one to find that individual customer using the data you have. And, and that allows you to deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. You know, demand-side management programs are getting a lot more complex, and with FiveWorks, they can help you manage it. To see how FiveWorks can help your program succeed, visit fiveworks.com slash the interchange or follow the link on the podcast page. That's FiveWorks with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange. I also happen to know there's a lot of uh, solar developers and storage developers out there who are obsessed with quality. And you know what? If you're obsessed with quality, I don't know why you're not using Shoals Technologies for your balance of systems. Shoals Technologies Group is the global leader in balance of systems solutions for solar and now storage. It's got this new BLA solution, which is an integrated wire harness that eliminates combiner boxes and slashes your installation costs. This American company has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar projects around the world. It's the gold standard for solar and storage. To learn more about how Shoals can make your project operate at the highest level, visit Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S. Shoals.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. This week, how Google, Microsoft, and other corporate giants are shaping energy markets. Uh, so I think the mistake that many corporate purchasers make is they fail to take into account in their forecasts you know, the impact of their own actions in the market. You know, renewable energy sort of cannibalizes itself. We are altering the market as we continue to develop more and more renewables. What will the market look like? You have these marginal priced markets, you know, focused on the, the, the lowest marginal price. Will those markets uh, be able to withstand, uh, you know, super low pricing? It, it is astounding and it's interesting and fascinating to sit back and kind of watch some of this unfold. We've got a double header for you. Firstly, I converse with Google's head of energy strategy, Neha Palmer, about hitting 100% renewable energy. I wanted to know exactly what that means. Then, Shale Khan talks with Brian Janis, Microsoft's general manager of energy. Those two will go deep on how Microsoft structures deals. In both conversations, you'll hear us talk about how corporates are thinking about matching renewables directly with demand in real time, rather than just a yearly average. It's, it's not easy, but it's where the market is headed for the most sophisticated companies. Consequently, you're going to hear about how Microsoft and Google are thinking about storage, which is crucial for those plans. It gets us into this bigger question that corporate buyers are facing. What happens to markets when the gigawatts and gigawatts of renewables they're buying literally reshape how markets function? You're going to want to listen to both these conversations. They complement each other really well, so enjoy. Let's turn first to Google's Neha Palmer. After hitting 100% renewables last year through a combination of direct purchases and renewable energy credits, she's preparing her team for a new phase of buying, matching supply granularly with demand. I first asked what Google means when it claims to be 100% renewably powered. 
That's a great question. Uh, 100% renewable means uh, different things to different people. Uh, for Google, it means that um, for every kilowatt hour of electricity we used across the globe last year, we bought an equivalent kilowatt hour of physical renewable energy. Um, again, this is a global and annual goal. Uh, our next step is actually to make this a more regional goal to match our consumption with renewable purchases on every grid that we operate on. Uh, and then also eventually to match it uh, with our consumption. So every hour, the energy production matches our consumption. But for right now, it means that uh, in 2017, uh, we bought a physical uh, kilowatt hour of renewable energy for every physical kilowatt hour that we consumed. So matching supply to your actual local demand is incredibly complicated. And there's a reason why uh, companies are only just starting on this process. Um, how do you work toward that? Like, what are the steps that you have to take now that you've, you know, hit this net renewable energy goal? Um, now, now, how do you actually like balance it with local demand? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a much more longer term goal than the renewable energy goal. Um, to give you context, we started uh, with our renewable energy purchases back in 2010, and it took us until 2017 to achieve that that matching goal. Um, we believe that this next phase will take a bit longer and kind of has three pillars to it. Uh, the first pillar really is um, technology and uh, things like storage, battery storage. Uh, all of these will have to come along in capability and cost uh, to kind of help us get there. Also, new forms of renewable energy generation, um, things we may not have even conceived yet, uh, will probably be required to get us there. Uh, the second is policy. So, you know, the market structure can often dictate what we can do in terms of renewable energy purchases. And so we'll need to see markets evolve to allow uh, more consumer choice uh, and consumers to be able to direct their energy purchases more. And the last piece is maybe a little bit easier and falls more into my camp here, which is uh, transactions. So are there ways to do energy transactions that uh, match our consumption better? Uh, a simple thing might be just matching a solar and wind purchase together so you have uh, more around-the-clock renewable energy, right? Uh, wind tends to blow at night in some places, and obviously the sun shines during the day. Um, so those are the three main pillars, but it will take longer than uh, the seven-year trajectory we had to get to the 100% renewable. The big question is how much more diverse this procurement is going to get among you know, big tech companies, big corporate customers. And people are just starting to take a look at storage. Um, they're considering other sets of technologies, but it's still mostly wind and solar. At what point do you think that will start to change? Yeah, you know, I think storage is probably the next kind of big thing to start to disrupt the market. Uh, you know, as far as technologies go, I always say I'm technology agnostic, but not cost agnostic. And I think that that would be similar for most corporations, right? We have to run a business and do this in a cost-effective manner. So, uh, you know, wind and solar are really the two that uh, are kind of setting the market prices right now. Uh, with storage, it really feels kind of like it was back in maybe 2008, 9, 10 for, for solar. Um, at that time, you really saw the only people buying large amounts of solar uh, were utilities trying to meet their renewable portfolio standards. Uh, they were mandated to do so. Um, but you did see that that kind of pushed the market to um, a level of uptake where the price was able to come down. And we're seeing that with solar now. Uh, it remains to be seen how fast that cost trajectory comes down um, and how that will actually interplay with the markets. Um, 
right now, I think they're still trying to feel out where is the most value for storage? Is it, um, you know, offsetting duck curves? Is it uh, ancillary services, regulation? And I think that's still being vetted in the market. But as the cost comes down, um, it, it will have uh, the ability to play in many more locations and in many more parts of the market. Um, and so we're hopeful that that will happen here soon um, and open up a world of, of different possibilities for different technologies beyond wind and solar as well. When you went to Google in 2012, you were at PG&E before that. So you had seen the cost trajectory of wind and solar come down. Um, were you surprised at all about um, you know how, how much cheaper these resources got in a pretty rapid period of time? I have to say it has been pretty astounding uh, to just see the rapid decline. I think solar, uh, they said over the last seven years, it's over 80% and wind 60%. Uh, that is pretty astounding for any industry to see price declines like that. Um, so yeah, definitely surprised at the speed. But when you look at the amount of uptake, um, just between utilities and even corporations, I believe corporates have bought over eight gigawatts of renewable energy to date. Um, you can see that the the demand is is there, and um, you know suppliers are able to add more manufacturing lines. And every time they do something like that, it just drives the market price down. What kind of like uh, internal resources can you use from Google to? you know, make data centers more efficient, for example, to make sure that you don't have to procure as much renewable energy um, or, you know, m monitoring power pricing or what have you. Like, are there other internal tools within Google that help you in your job in achieving this um, ambitious renewable energy goal? Yes. Uh, you know, machine learning is something that we are developing rapidly at Google across many different platforms. Um, cloud is one area. Uh, we have machine learning offerings and AI offerings on that platform, but we also leverage them internally. Uh, a huge emphasis of our data center program is actually uh, what we call the megawatt, right? The hour, the megawatt hour, kilowatt hour that we actually never use. For us, uh, this is kind of the main way to reduce our energy consumption. And it started way back when, when we would uh, separate what we call the hot aisle and the cold aisle of the data center. And now it's kind of evolved to things like machine learning. Uh, we were actually able to run some pilots within our data centers where we implemented machine learning to uh, optimize our cooling systems. And we were able to realize a 40% reduction in energy for cooling when we were utilizing this machine learning. So these are tools that uh, we're using across our businesses. And, uh, you know, I am also investigating different ways uh, to use this machine learning AI uh, technology to see if we can optimize around our energy procurement um, and, and uh, pricing. And have you found any successful ways of using that data yet? Or are you still in the beginning phases of that exploration? We're definitely in the beginning phases. I think, um, you know, the energy industry is very interesting in that there's so much data created. Uh, you have meter data, you have um, SCADA data, you have pricing points, you have hub settlements, you have all of these different uh, data points. Um, a big portion of ML and AI is getting that data into a format that's understandable. So we are working on that. Uh, we're working with various partners uh, within the company and trying to figure out how we can optimize around that. Um, and it remains to be seen how it will be used. But I definitely think that this is something that we'll be using in the future. How do you see Google as an energy 
producer in the future, a participant in the energy markets. Um, you know, not just signing contra- contracts for renewable energy, but as you outlined it, using on-site uh, resources to maybe bid into wholesale markets to provide um, ancillary services to the grid to not only serve your facilities but to be a an actor a beneficial actor on the grid. Um, it seems to me that the next step in integrating a lot of these other resources beyond just wind and solar makes you into, for lack of a better phrase, the prosumer. Um, this this you know integrated energy provider, an independent power producer, so to speak. Um, t- tell me about the role that you see Google playing as your operations get a lot more complicated and the technologies get more sophisticated. Yeah. I mean, I think it remains to be seen. The technology isn't quite there yet. Uh, the one advantage we have and, and many other companies do have is, is a, you know, engage in technology is, again, this data. So we are pretty expert at finding data streams, figuring out how to leverage that, and then tying it to operations with our data centers. Uh, you know, I don't think we have a strong vision of what that is right now, but to the extent that we're able to meet our goals, which is, you know, cost-effective, low-carbon energy, we'll definitely engage with the markets to do that. Uh, you know, we already have this large portfolio of renewable energy projects, uh, over three gigawatts of projects that we've engaged with, and we do engage with the grid with those projects. We're actually scheduling the power from those projects onto the grid, bidding into the market, bidding some ancillary services from those projects onto the market. So we're already, you know, a step in the direction of doing that. Um, New technology will just allow us new ways to engage with those markets. One of the dangers of, you know, more closely matching supply with your localized demand is that you could potentially over-engineer the problem. You know, you procure... Uh, more resources than you actually need. What are some of like the issues that you need to think about as you attempt to serve your local demands with with renewables? Well, I think one thing that we're, you know, lucky in some sense is that our data center loads are pretty predictable. So they're quite flat. In fact, uh, from the utility perspective, being an ex-utility person, I think of that as the ideal load, right? It's very uh, flat, uh, not too peaky and pretty constant. Uh, throughout the year. So from that perspective, that's a, a benefit in trying to solve this equation. Um, you know, I think the mix of resources that we'll have, uh, it still remains to be seen. I think there is a lot of research going on. I think that there is a lot of assumptions around the different cost trajectories and capabilities of technologies that we're going to have to uh, decode over time. Uh, I think we'll continue to focus on making sure that we're optimizing around cost. Uh, that will obviously be a key goal. Um, but I still think that the market's still vetting itself and in, in how we're going to be meeting this goal. You said you're, you're um, tech neutral, but you're not cost neutral. So let's assume that renewables hadn't dropped in cost as quickly as they have. Do you think you would um, have achieved this 100% renewable energy target in 2017? Gosh, it's really hard to <laughs> guess what would have happened. A uh, counterfactual. Yeah, counterfactual, <laughs> uh, counterfactual judgment here. But, you know, I think it's interesting. There are so many different forces in the energy markets, right? We haven't talked about natural gas, but that's been a huge driver in what's happening in the market as well. Uh, the advent of fracking and this huge flood of cheap natural gas has really changed the energy markets. Um what you're seeing now is that it's a very energy-only focused market. So you're seeing renewables actually set that price of, of power in the market. 
Um, so, you know, if you're looking at things like premiums, who knows what it would have looked like? You might have just seen the, the price set higher, but it would still be at the price of the renewables. Um, again, the counterfactual is hard to prove and hard to uh, analyze, but um, it's interesting to think about. 100% renewable energy has become a bit of a triggering word in energy circles. There's this fierce debate over whether we need 100% renewable energy, whether we could power the world with wind, water, and solar, as Professor Mark Jacobson claims, or whether we need this whole other set of technologies to decarbonize the grid, and whether you know 100% renewable energy should be the goal, or a decarbonized grid, which kind of opens you up to a bunch of other potential technologies, and the most notable being nuclear and carbon capture and storage. So as Google goes forward, is 100% renewable energy going to be the goal or is decarbonization and flexibility equally as important? Yeah. Again, as we move towards that contemporaneous matching of our load, uh, we're going to probably have to consider um, other technologies. And we're definitely open to that. Um, you know, the debate that is out there is internal as well. That we have the ultimate goal has always been to reduce our carbon footprint um, with electric consumption being the largest portion. Um, that's where we can pull that lever. Uh, for us, um, you know, we will look at whatever kind of gets us along the path to carbonization, de- sorry, decarbonization the fastest. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about how that plays into your internal conversation around energy. I've been following Google's approach to energy for a long time from, you know, way back when it first invested in a rooftop solar system at the Mountain View campus in in 2006. And then a year or two later, when it launched renewable energy as less than coal, this wide ranging investment initiative in which it poured money into enhanced geothermal, uh, geothermal drilling techniques, concentrated solar power. And eventually that was abandoned and Google kind of reformulated its strategy. Years later, there were a couple of engineers who worked on that RE is less than C initiative. And they wrote this internal report about why focusing on renewables just wasn't enough to decarbonize the energy system. And when that went public, it fed into this broader debate around – the criticism of a renewables-only approach versus maybe a broader decarbonization strategy. And that was a really influential document. I'm just curious if that type of conversation, if you're thinking about that as you're engaged in you know these long-term procurements where you're actually having to evolve your business model and it's just getting a lot more complex for you over time. Yeah, I think it does. A couple of considerations that I have. So I am running a huge operation here, right? We buy a lot of renewable energy because we have a lot of an electric consumption for our data centers. Um, I have to do this today. We need to buy this energy for delivery tomorrow. Um, I think a lot of the debate does center around some of the assumptions of cost trajectories, of availability of resources, a lot of different things. I think a lot of that still has to be played out. Um, we have to see how the technology roadmaps develop. And so that's super exciting. Um, as an energy geek, I find that very interesting. But as someone who has to provide an operational support for our, our business, um, I'm looking at the here and now. And so from that perspective, I think that's why you've seen us focus on the renewables. It's something we can do today. And it is offsetting a huge amount of carbon, uh, what we're doing here with the renewable energy purchases. Uh, 
there is definitely, you know, debate on what is the best path forward. Again, the goal is to mitigate carbon and, you know, we'll continue to investigate and, and work towards uh, whatever is the best path forward. Um, I do think, though, that the industry needs to mature more and some of these technologies and policies and market structures have to be played out more before we can make a, a call on, you know, what is the best path forward. But in the meantime, we're going to keep buying uh, renewable energy uh, because that's something that we can do now. Has there been any moment in your job when you've taken a step back and you've looked at pricing, for example, for projects and and you're just like, whoa, this just like really surprised or where it's encapsulated how quickly this moment is changing? Absolutely. You know, we've been running RFPs for renewable energy now for the entire time I've been here. And every single time we run an RFP, it seems like the price decreases by, call it five bucks. Um, it's astounding. Uh, you see things that are sub $20 now. Um, it's especially considering, you know, when I started my career in this field at PG&E, the prices that we were seeing, um, just astounding. Uh, it does make me think like, you know, what will the market look like? You have these marginal priced markets, you know, focused on the, the, the lowest marginal price. Um, will those markets uh, be able to withstand, uh, you know, super low pricing? Uh it is astounding and it's interesting and fascinating to sit back and kind of watch some of this unfold. Do you think they will? That seems to be the big question that finally people are asking, right? You're you're seeing twenty, thirty, forty dollar uh per megawatt hour contracts in wind and solar and now all of a sudden people are worried about wind and solar being a victim of their own success because they're price takers. Can markets withstand all this cheap wind and solar, you think? I, I do think they can. I, um, you know, and I'm most certainly not a market design expert. I think there are ways to um, support the market and support renewables. Um, you know, but it is interesting to see as we see more and more come onto the grid how various services will be valued, how you know, reg up, reg, reg down, um, you know, black start plants. All of this stuff will have to be um, potentially rethought. Um, but it's very exciting. I think that. From the customer perspective, we're getting great, low-cost, low-carbon energy. So that's uh, the way that I look at it. Um, it may be a period of disruption, but the end result will be good. Neha Palmer is the head of energy strategy at Google. Neha, thank you so much. Thank you. We've got plenty of awesome conversation on the way. But first, we want to tell you about our supporters of this show who help bring you this content for free, Five Works is a major supporter of the interchange. Thanks to Five Works. They recognize that times are changing quickly for utilities. They're changing like crazy for these corporate energy customers. Well, the same goes for utilities as well. They're being asked to better engage and service their customers and to anticipate their changing expectations and preferences. So what does it mean to truly know your customers? Well, you can leverage your data and rising standards for customer engagement to benefit your business. And with FiveWorks, you can do that. FiveWorks personalizes communication and drives customer action at scale through behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning, enabling you to deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. you got to check out FiveWorks. That's FiveWorks with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange. If you're a utility, you need to know what to do with your data. Check out FiveWorks. Now, if you're a solar developer or a storage developer, you got to be a customer of Shoals Technologies Group because Shoals is a leading manufacturer of balance of systems solutions for solar and storage. They are the top company in this space. 
Scholl's slogan is inventing simple. No matter the product, it could be a combiner box, a junction box, inline fuse, monitoring system, Scholl's makes it with the highest performance standards and a drive toward elegance. Scholl's solution is called the BLA solution. It embodies this approach. It's an integrated wire harness that eliminates combiner boxes and significantly lowers installation costs. Scholl's has been around for a while. It's been serving the solar industry since 1996, and after years of exponential growth, this American company maintains the same passion for quality and innovation. So if you want to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions in the industry, contact Shoals. S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals Technologies Group. You can find out more at Shoals.com. Okay, so let's get a bit more detailed on how these big companies are structuring deals, shall we? To get that detail, Shale Khan talked with Microsoft's Brian Janis. In the remainder of the show, Shale and Brian riff on risks, the details behind some big deals, and the future of electricity markets. As Brian explains, companies like Microsoft create their own weather systems on the grid, which will at some point impact the economics of their procurement and everyone else's. Brian begins there, detailing how cheap renewables create their own sets of risks. Um, I think, honestly, the one that is probably least appreciated, that, that is actually the most significant risk, is shape risk. Um, you know, I, this is something that, that you've talked about uh, on your show, which is, as we see increasing penetration of renewables, um, you know, there is a, um, a downward impact on wholesale market prices. Uh, and so if we're trying to put increasingly more renewable energy into a grid, th- then a lot of ways is, is already fully supplied it is going to have a downward effect on price. And that, I think, is the biggest challenge that, that buyers really need to appreciate um, and, and that not all the corporate buyers really taking that into account. And if you take a forward curve that just assumes that it's going to slope upward because prices always rise, I really think that fails to take into account that we continue to inject this zero variable cost energy into the market. Um, and so if you're not at least contemplating that wholesale prices in a market with 30 40 50% renewables, will be lower than they are today, then I don't think you're adequately assessing, really assessing the, the risk and the cost in purchasing renewables. And so in a typical kind of traditional project structure, who bears that risk? So if market prices, if you, you know, you put a solar project in Texas, and then all of a sudden a ton of solar floods that area of the market in Texas and wholesale prices when solar is generating start to crash, who's bearing that risk? Who, who suffers from that? It, it's it's almost always the buyer. I mean, whether it is a, um, I mean, there's two different things that can happen, right? You can have that in the context of a vertically integrated utility, right? Where they go out and they build a renewable project and they're going to guarantee cost recovery for the next 20 years on that project. So the, the you know, whether that project ultimately ends up being valuable. Now, again, we're not talking about the, the carbon reduction value because there's a societal value there. We're just talking about the pure value of the electricity in the wholesale market. Um, that will be borne by the ratepayers. If it's a PPA, uh, then it's going to be bor- borne by the off-taker, right? The off-taker is really taking effectively that that merchant position, if you will, in the marketplace. So they're they're bearing all of the cost and risk of that project. Right. And actually, that's a good segue into you mentioned that you did a wind procurement deal in Ireland uh, late last year. And if I remember right, that one actually included some amount of battery storage within it, which presumably is one of the things that you're looking at to try to deal with this shape risk. Um, How much storage was incorporated in that deal? And do you see more of the procurements that you do going forward, incorporating storage or some other way to be able to make those projects more dispatchable? 
Uh, we do. Yeah. And th there was a relatively small amount uh, incorporated in that particular project. It was really a pilot to sort of test, um, you know, the, the interface with the market and how you would integrate those two together. And we're starting to see more and more of that. You know, we've seen some announcements recently in the United States uh, focused on the same thing. And so I, I really look forward over the next probably two or three years to start to really be able to increase the percentage of storage integrated into these projects, uh, because I do think that's going to be a critical piece of uh, being able to integrate, you know, higher percentage of renewables. It's not, uh, it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve all the integration problems, uh, but it does help uh, to get us to a higher uh, level of, of renewable penetration. I think there's two, two ways to think about why you might add energy storage to one of these cor big corporate procurement deals. One of them is sort of what we're talking about now, which is to manage that risk and to, you know, have the project sell at higher prices within the market. That sort of sits alongside, but is not the same thing as, as the other reason you might do it, which would be um, to try to shape your procurement according to your actual load, right? And to, instead of just saying, I'm going to match every kilowatt hour that I use in my data center with one kilowatt hour of renewable electricity, regardless of when it was generated, instead saying, I'm going to try to either perfectly match or, you know, come closer to matching my load pattern with the generation pattern of the, of the procurement. People have talked about that as kind of the next step of like a hundred percent renewables for, for really progressive corporates. I mean, you would obviously need energy storage in order to do that. Have you thought about that? Do you think that's the long-term vision of, of where this procurement heads or is that just too costly? No, I, you know, actually, I, I don't think that's a long-term vision and it's, it's not so much about the cost though. Um, so, I mean, first of all, we're absolutely investing in those sort of capabilities that are going to enable greater participation for storage in the energy markets, whether it is integrated with a renewable energy project or behind our meter. You know, we're doing some pilots right now on utilizing data center UPS systems, which are our uh, integrated battery systems, as grid batteries. So we can have this grid interactive UPS. Um, and we're really excited about that project. Wait, can we, for people who don't, aren't familiar, so UPS is uninterruptible power. That's right. Um, and, and it's been common in data centers for years, right? So what's new about that is using it as a sort of a grid battery. Yeah. So, I mean, every data, for every server I have, every megawatt of servers I have, I have a megawatt of backup generation and I have a megawatt of batteries as well. And that battery is there to bridge a potential grid outage to when my generator can start up. So maybe that's a, you know, somewhere between 30 seconds and two minutes, right? So all data centers have, uh, or most data centers at least have this, this battery capacity, uh, but it usually just sits there idle. And so the opportunity is, can we tap into the spare capacity that those batteries have and use them as a, a true grid uh, resource? Um, now that being said, so we're working all that, all that, and I think it's, it's really uh, interesting but going back to the, the ultimate question of, you know, should uh, renewable purchasers be effectively responsible for trying to solve how to integrate that resource or, or match their load to the resource? Um, you know, I, I think the idea that they, the buyers need to be concerned about that um, is not ultimately going to be efficient at large scale. So if I put my, my Econ 101 hat on for a second, you know, I think this is a textbook case of comparative advantage. The question is, am I as an individual consumer best positioned to determine how to integrate that resource or match my load of that resource, or is it better left to the market? And, and while it's true, I could match one-to-one -one my renewables with storage, for instance, whether it's on my site or in the project itself, 
I don't think that's necessarily the best outcome in the long run if, say, there's a controllable load out there that would offer curtailment at a marginal rate that's far less than the cost of my battery, right? I think the value of the grid is that we can design markets that lead to the least cost and most efficient solution. And if several years from now, I'm having to worry about time matching my own renewables, I would probably say as an industry, we've clearly failed to develop the kind of market that is capable of integrating high penetrations of renewables. And that's really the North Star for us. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I want to get into a conversation about market design in a little bit as well. But but I think it's interesting, the notion that, you know, you don't have to think about that as a buyer at scale is particularly interesting, because at scale, meaning if every large energy purchaser does what Microsoft is doing and what Google is doing and all these other companies, um, then you have a lot of companies procuring a lot of renewable energy. And if they're not thinking at all about how that aligns with their load shape, then you're really putting a, a pretty big burden on the market to figure out the rest. So you need pretty clever market design, I would think. And whether or not it's clever, it needs to be a, a you know decent sized departure from the markets as they exist today. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think actually that's probably the biggest challenge and honestly why uh, we've really pivoted a lot of our focus to this issue of market design and and working you know more at the the federal level uh, in thinking about how our market's going to evolve in the long run I would say you know over the last you know a few years ago we were much more focused on state level issues you know what's happening in in our state houses and public service commissions and we've really pivoted because we realized that uh, without a a more intelligent market design that really, contemplates that the grid that we have 10, 15 years from now is going to be radically different than the one that we had for the last 115 years. Um, this is the first time where we're really injecting a technology that has the potential to really cause us to completely rethink um, how markets actually function. Because you're, you know, we, this is the first time we've ever experienced a uh, truly cost competitive, zero marginal cost asset. Um, and that's pretty transformative for the wholesale markets that have been predicated on there being a marginal cost to operate. Right. Okay. So I do want to come back to market design, but before we do, I want to actually talk about a couple more of the specific procurements that you guys have done. One of them you mentioned and was just announced, which is this 60 megawatt uh, rooftop distributed solar procurement in Singapore. So as far as I know, I haven't seen many other, if any other sort of large corporate individual procurements of a distributed rooftop portfolio, certainly not in Singapore. So can you just kind of talk us through, one, why you did this distributed rooftop deal, or I'm not even sure if it's all rooftop, um, but distributed solar deal. And two, like, you know, how much more complex is it to get that kind of a deal structured versus just procuring from a single 60 megawatt project? Yeah, so you know, going back to what I was saying before, you know, we we do face unique challenges in each market that we operate in. Uh, the market structures are different, um, and in the case of Singapore, just the sheer lack of availability of land. Um, th there isn't somewhere where we can go plop, uh, you know, a hundred and fifty megawatt uh, utility scale project in Singapore. Uh, there's just not land available to do that. So we were really limited to to just looking at what is available, and in Singapore's rooftops. Um, and so, you know, that was uh, clearly the, the only clear route we had to get to um, a material amount of uh, energy. And it, it kind of goes to the question we get a lot, which is, well, why don't you just put solar on your own rooftop? Well, we can, but 
you know, if I put solar on the rooftop of a data center, I've effectively supplied the the office building that's attached to it. I, I haven't really done anything uh, to address the, the massive amount of server load just because energy consumption in a data center is so energy dense. You know, we build buildings that are you know, roughly the size of a Walmart super center, uh, but inside of that footprint, we're consuming 10 to 20 times the amount of electricity uh, just because of the nature of what we do inside that building. Uh, and so we have to get creative in thinking about how we can bring renewable energy, uh, particularly because we are concerned about doing it in the markets where we operate. And if we're operating in Singapore, then we need to find a way to get clean energy in Singapore. So what does that look like? Are you owning these projects that are on a bunch of rooftops? Who's developing them? You know, How are you going to be sure that there are 60 megawatts worth of rooftop solar to be procured in Singapore? So no, we're not uh, we're not owning them. It, it is actually similar to you know any other project that we would do. Um, we're we're an, effectively an off taker, um, but we're not going to own the assets themselves. Um, in fact, we, we look at this very similarly to a, uh, a utility scale project that you know there's going to be you know X amount of solar or wind out there. Um, you know we're not we're not going to own the asset, but we're contracting you know for the long term. Uh, output of you know either the energy or the attributes or both, um, and, and that's effectively how we we do most of our deals. So somebody else you know comes to you and says, or you go to them, um, and you come to an agreement where you say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna procure 60 megawatts of power from from this distributed uh, set of arrays, and then they go out and develop the projects over the next couple of years, uh, and then you procure the power when they come online. Is that more or less how the process works? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, is there any, Singapore doesn't have a huge rooftop solar market even today. So is there any concern, you know, do are you facing some risk in just like development risk at this point, which is bigger than the risk you would face in a centralized solar array where, you know, you can check the boxes on like permitting and interconnection, all those things. And then you kind of know the project is going to be there um, because you're a bankable off taker. Do you face any additional sort of layer of risk when doing something like this? I'm, I'm interested because I'm curious whether you think this is a model that is going to be replicable and scalable or whether this is sort of a one-off thing because it's Singapore. Well, I think there's a there is a I think a small amount of volume risk, right? Does the full 60 megawatts get developed? But what you don't have, what you have in uh, traditional utility scale PPAs, is you don't have the risk that the entire project doesn't get developed. Uh, you know, we've had other projects that have been had challenges related to, to permitting issues um, that that may uh, you know put in jeopardy the hundred percent of the output. Right, the project may never get built. Um, you know, in this one, because it is distributed, in some ways you actually reduce that development risk. Um, you, you may have slightly more uncertainty around: is it going to be 60 megawatts or 58 megawatts? Um, but you know, you're actually distributing some of that exposure you have uh, in traditional development projects. Hmm. Okay, so let's uh, transfer back to talking about the U.S. And I want to talk about two procurements that you've done in tandem because I think they present interesting contrasting examples of sort of how uh, you are working with or not working with utilities as you go through this process of, of 
of procuring renewable energy across all of your areas of load. So in Washington state, in your home state, um, there was a bunch of press, I think last year when Microsoft reached an agreement to um, procure directly from generators, sort of like direct access in California, rather than from your incumbent utility, which is Puget Sound Energy. And that was sort of framed, I think, often in the press as, as bypassing the utility or defecting from the utility. And you did have like a $24 million breakup fee to do that. Um, but I think it, this, it's a little bit more complex than that. And then, you know, in a sort of contrasting example in Virginia, um, you ended up, I think, partnering with Dominion and the state of Virginia on a procurement, a 20 megawatt solar procurement there that looks sort of like a, a green tariff type program. So I'm interested to get your take on sort of how those two examples are similar and differ from each other and more generally, you know, how you're going about working with utilities when you start a new procurement or when you want to go about um, having a different source of energy wherever you are. Well, you know, I think I think like politics, you know, all energy is local, right? Uh, I mean, we're pursuing the same strategy everywhere, which is we want access to market-based rates. Uh, we want access to price signals, you know, whether it be real-time pricing or ancillary service markets, you know, all of this enables us to do the sort of optimization behind our meter that ensures we're putting in the appropriate technology in the right place, uh, you know, effectively what the market is signaling that needs, as well as giving us access to uh, be able to participate in large-scale renewable projects. Um, we can't really can't do any of this without the price signal. And that, that's a, a key thing for us. Um, so if the market needs, for instance, more flexible, fast-start resources, um, but I don't have a price signal telling me to put that in behind my meter, um, then I'm not going to incur the added expense, which is what we did in, in Wyoming. Uh, you know, another case that you didn't mention, but, um, you know, we put in uh, fast start natural gas generators there as part of a sort of Uber tariff we created with them that gave us both access to market prices, the ability to procure renewables directly, um, as well as uh, install uh, generation that the grid really needed, that utility needed, uh, in order to meet some of its capacity needs. And so in every case, you know, we'll, so I'm sorry, can I just ask about the sure. Wyoming example? So yeah. is that then you negotiated a, a sort of Microsoft specific tariff in Wyoming that gave you access to those prices, the, the real-time prices and, and price signals that other consumers don't have because they haven't negotiated the same tariff and then provided you something akin to direct access where you can procure directly? So in this case, we're actually still behind the utility. So we are still a customer of the utility. Uh, they're just providing us with a market-based rate. And this is actually a tariff that is open to any customer, uh, but it's, it's predicated on uh, bringing some amount of backup capacity uh, into the uh, situation. And that was the key for this, this particular utility because as we uh, approached them a few years ago about our growth in their uh, service territory, it was very clear that we were going to become a, a relatively large percentage of their overall customer base. And they had some concerns about needing new capacity. And so we started talking to the utility and say, you know, there's two ways we can do this, right? We can continue to grow inside of your footprint. You can go put a megawatt of peaking generation, you know, on your side of the meter. I, I in turn, am going to have to put a megawatt of generation in the form of my standby behind my meter. But in that case, we're putting in two megawatts of generation for every megawatt of load I bring to the system. And that, that doesn't actually seem to make a lot of sense. What if instead we put that peaking gas-fired capacity behind our meter so I had my, my backup 
resource there, um, but also then could provide capacity to the grid if and when it's needed. Um, and that, that really became the more elegant solution that, that we came to is that, hey, as long as we're bringing our own backup uh, capacity, um, then, then we can grow inside of their footprint with uh, reduced risk to the other ratepayers because now the utilities not have to go out and build a bunch of new assets. Um, and, and we're sort of killing two birds with one stone and, and coming up with a much more elegant solution. Right. So that's a good example of uh, what seems like an elegant solution that was negotiated between you and the utility in Wyoming. Um, so what about the Puget Sound Energy example in, in Washington? Yeah. And so, you know, the, I think one of the key differences between Wyoming and uh, the Puget Sound example is for Wyoming, we were largely looking at net new load to the system. And so there was not a case of stranded cost, right? There was a case of the potential to build a new asset, but we weren't talking about a bunch of existing assets. Um, in the case of Puget Sound, you know, again, we had the same ultimate goal, which is we want to we get to the market-based rate. Uh, we want to have that price signal so that even as a campus, we can start to better optimize and think about how we use electricity. Um, but in this case, of course, there were stranded costs involved. Um, and that's what led to the, you know, the $24 million payment. Um, but, it, but it got us to the same end. You know, we're now you know, going down this road of we're going to be you know, a, a more, and this is you know, or true direct access, which is not really what we're doing in Wyoming. We're there. We still sit behind the utility. Um, and, and, and in this case, of course, now we're also you know, able to then control our own destiny as it relates to our renewable goals. So in that case, you are no longer a customer of Puget Sound Energy. Is that correct? Uh, not, not, not for generation. Yeah, I mean, we're still a, obviously a, a T&D customer of theirs. Right. And then how about the Dominion example in Virginia? Was that a similar case of you had existing load and needed to fulfill that? Or were you putting in a new data center? What did that look like? Um, yeah, that, was a, that one's even a little different than the other two in that it, it was really just driving to how do we get um, you know, and spur demand for more renewables uh, in that particular market. Um, and so that was, you know, Dominion had a project uh, that they wanted to build. They originally brought it to the commission and it was rejected. Uh, and so we stepped in and said, hey, what, what role can we play in this project uh, to help it move forward? Um, and so that was really just a partnership with the utility to say, hey, we've got this, this project that they want to build and we would love to see them build. Um, what can we do to help? And, and that really kind of led us to that, that project. You know, one thing that I'm like noticing from this conversation is just how variable these different procurements are and the different needs are in different locations, both because of the you know difference in the facilities that you have in different locations, but the regulatory structures and the tariffs that are available, the price signals, what the markets need. And I guess one question I have for you is, so you have the capacity to do this because Microsoft has, first of all, has a lot of load in a lot of places and so thinks about energy because I'm sure it's a big cost, but also you know, you have a team and you guys are all dedicated to figuring this stuff out. Do you think that ultimately every major energy purchaser is going to look more like Microsoft does just in its sophistication in, in these types of things? Um, or is it going to be limited to a small number of companies that have huge load from data centers? Well, I, I think if we, if we don't evolve um, the, the structures and the opportunities in the market, it, it is going to severely limit um, the, the types of companies that can participate in this. Because you're right, not, not every customer has a big energy team, right? Not every customer is going to be comfortable uh, in dealing with some of the, you know, whether it's the 
technical challenges, the accounting challenges, all the things that come along with doing these sorts of deals, with participating in, you know, effectively at the the wholesale level, which is what almost all these deals entail to some degree, um, being a, a wholesale participant or at least understanding uh, some of the the risks and costs involved in wholesale market participation. Um, I, I think as an industry, as I kind of alluded to this earlier, um, you know, we've made great progress in sort of opening up the number of companies that are participating in these types of deals. But but we're still dealing with, you know, generally very large customers who are doing sort of one-off transactions, buying, you know, 100% of a 150 megawatt project, for instance, or 200 megawatt project. And we really have to get to the point where new models start to evolve, where uh, smaller buyers are able to participate to some degree uh, through, through some form of aggregation, um, or you know, being able to warehouse projects and, and break them up in tranches, you know that that's really where I think the focus of the industry is going right now. And there's been a lot of talk of, about that over the last couple of years. Um, I, I think this is the year where we're going to start to see some of those new models um, uh, start to evolve and 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 be announced. And so we're excited about some of the progress we're seeing behind the scenes there. Um, but I think that's going to be the next step. How do, how do you get the five, ten, twenty megawatt buyer? into this space because they can't do it on their own and they can't do it under the traditional models. It has to be a new model that's going to allow them to come into this market. Right. And I think you're right that there's there's a lot of effort and attention being paid to that right now. Rocky Mountain Institute through its Business Renewable Center has been focused on this sort of community scale procurement for a little while. There's also this uh, startup called Level 10 Energy, which is basically dedicated just to doing that and raised a big Series A last year. So I think you're right that like we start to see the deals get announced and more significant volume this year. And presumably in some of those deals, you end up with a structure that looks somewhat similar to what we've seen in community solar in a lot of places, which is that you'll have a single project, say it's a hundred megawatt project, but um, you'll have an anchor tenant who can take up half of that. So Microsoft could be 50 megawatts out of a hundred megawatt project and the other 50 megawatts can be dispersed amongst a larger group of smaller buyers who may be a little bit less credit worthy. That's right. And, and we think that's a, a very credible model and one that, that's sort of likely to um, have some success in the coming years. Yeah. So one thing that I think often doesn't get talked about a whole lot when we're talking about all these corporate renewable energy procurement deals is the economics for the customer. I think there's a presumption that, you know, so you set these goals to to get 50% or 100% or whatever it is of your energy from renewables. But the presumption underlying that is that you would only do this if you're actually saving money uh, in the process. Is it true that you are saving money on all these procurements that you've done? Are you, is it, is it economically a net positive or are we still in the position where, especially given all these risks that you're bearing about market prices and so on, or is the overarching sort of driving factor, the desire for social good, and you're not actually making money on them? You know, I, I think the short answer is it's it's both. I mean, we, we're certainly concerned about uh, the economics of these projects, uh, but but we don't uh, we're not looking at that to the exclusion of the, uh, the the societal good component. I mean, there's no doubt that the cost of renewables has dropped to the point that, that no other, uh, I guess we'll call it you know traditionally conventional technology um, can compete you know, from a just a pure cost perspective. But that's on a net new basis. Right, and I think sometimes it it can be a little misleading when we see these studies come out to show, hey, the cost of solar and wind, you know, is is now cheaper than gas and coal. Um, but you know, it's not all. That's not really the issue we should be looking at. Uh, really, it's about 
um, the cost of generation on a net basis, um, that's really the appropriate comparison. Uh, so, you know, what we're concerned about is whether the cost of new generation will be adequately compensated in the wholesale market, um, a market that really in many places is already uh, amply supplied uh, with energy. Um, it's also a market that's experiencing very high rates of renewable penetration, uh, certainly in pockets like Texas, for instance. Uh, so I think the mistake that many corporate purchasers make is they fail to take into account in their forecasts you know, the impact of their own actions in the market. Um, and I think, again, this is something that, that you've talked about on your show, and, and I think done a good job of uh, surfacing this issue, um, is that, you know, renewable energy sort of cannibalizes itself. Um, and so when you take a forward curve and just assume, as I said before, it's just going to slope upward, I don't think you're, you're really taking into account the fact that we are altering the market as we continue to develop more and more renewables. Now, as, as it relates, and that, that's really more of an issue to think about, again, the market design and how do we start to evolve and design markets that allow us to do the sort of deep decarbonization we need to do because technology is going to be a part of it, but technology isn't going to solve the problem. It, it also has to be a market piece. Um, I mean, on the, and on the societal question, you know, we recognize that, you know, we are building, you know, what, what we consider sort of the electric grid of the 21st century. You know, if you think back to the 20th century Nearly every innovation that we achieved as a society in some way can be traced back to electricity and electrification. Um, but with all that advancement, you know, we, we created this legacy and this dependency on fossil fuels. Um, and in this century, the prime mover for innovation is going to be data. And Microsoft, along with a, a handful of other companies, are really building out that underlying infrastructure that will support that innovation. And a core value for us as a company is that we're going to leave a positive legacy with what we build. Um, and that means the electricity we buy, uh, which is the electricity is really the raw material of the cloud, uh, that's going to be renewable energy. So let's talk a little bit more about the market design then. I know you've been um, pretty active. You mentioned you had been more active at the state level and then now increasingly at the federal level as well. What should we be paying most attention to in the, on the policy or regulatory front if we're you know, in agreement and alignment with you on, on where the market needs to head? What are you focused on? Well, you know, I think we're going to uh, continue being in a place, you know, at least for the next few years, where we're playing both offense and defense um, on, on the policy front. Um, you know, for instance, we want to continue to support FERC um, in the upcoming technical conference on DERs. Uh, we think that was a um, really great order that we got a couple weeks ago uh, around you know, really highlighting the importance of storage in this market. Um, and so that that's really important to us. Um, we also want to continue opposing any proposals that are focused you know, solely on you know, propping up uh, out-of-the-money assets uh, that would you know, result in, in really undermining markets uh, in such a way as to di distort price signals. Um, because the risk that we see there is that you, you know, we know that flexibility is valuable to the grid, both today and it's going to be increasingly valuable in the future. Uh, what we don't want to see is a market where it's not valued. Right. And so th that's, I think, where a, a lot of people that are focused just on the technology are sort of missing the market component that just because you can create, um, you know, a, a great new storage product doesn't mean the market's actually going to reward you for that. You know, if, if we if we fail at the market design piece of it, then, you know, what we're left with is a lot of great technology that the market's not valuing. And so, you know, that's why you know, focusing on these policy issues is so important to us. 
I'm wondering if you have a view on the right way to value flexibility. I've been having a bunch of these conversations lately, and it seems like the direction the markets are heading right now, there's sort of two different uh, paths you can go down, or there's probably more, but at least there are two that the markets are currently going down. One version is to say, we recognize that flexibility is going to be the coin of the realm and electricity for the next decade or two. And so we're going to introduce a product in our wholesale market specifically to value flexibility. So that's like what PJM has proposed that, you know, the CalISO has a flexibility product and is kind of revamping it right now. Uh, so that's one version of what you can do. Another version of what you can do is head toward Texas and you know introduce an energy-only market that by having prices that fluctuate wildly kind of inherently values flexibility. And I've heard people make cases on either side. Do you have an opinion um, as one who is both going to be consuming and providing flexibility on, on which of those is going to make it easier for you to build out what the grid needs? I think we are going to have to get more sophisticated in the in the products that we offer. And I'm not I'm not fully convinced. I, I could say myself in some ways a little agnostic on this point because I still think there's a lot we need to learn about how markets can evolve. And, and much of it is a, a, a software question, right? Like how can we better visualize what's happening on the grid? And can we provide the type of price signals that result in actual investment? Um, it's not clear to me yet that an energy-only market provides that level of price signal. I mean, are we going to really, is someone really going to put in a lot of, uh, you know, new stationary storage into Texas and the hopes that, you know, we're going to see some $9,000 megawatt hour prices in the next few years? I mean, maybe they will, but, you know, from what I've seen from, you know, the appetite of of banks to, you know, back those sort of investments, that's a big, that's a big if, right? And so I think we're, we're really going to have to experiment with the types of products that we're going to have to create in the market that actually result in uh, in this sort of investment. Uh, we're we're in somewhat of a unique situation because you know as a data center operator, you know I mentioned that you know for every megawatt of servers, we have a megawatt of generation and a megawatt of storage. So we are going to be building assets. Period. Um, that's just part of of you know building out our um, our asset base. And so what we're looking at is saying, hey, if I'm going to be in the market anyway, I want to make sure that I'm optimizing that investment to to what the market needs. Uh, of course, I need a price signal too, but um, I'm, I'm a little different than, say, just an IPP that's going to go, you know, build a, a, a some, you know, gas plant on on merchant on a merchant basis. Um, so, you know, that's partly why we're so interested in these questions because you know we are investing a tremendous amount in all of these assets, and you know that means you know, we really are focused on getting the markets right so that you know we can have that signal. To, to know that we're putting in the right thing at the right time. I want to transition for a minute um, from talking about Microsoft as a large energy consumer to talking about Microsoft as a technology company and the types of things that you're working on that pertain to this energy transition. Uh, I know that you're, you, you've given some examples publicly of working with an Australian startup on a sort of uh, residential internet of things technology that relates to, to energy consumption. You've worked on you aggregated smart water heaters in Hawaii. You've worked in Holland on a partnership that's a sort of advanced smart grid thing. So, you know, what of all the of all the ways that Microsoft's technology touches the electricity market, what do you find most exciting? Well, you know, I, it is an exciting, actually, exciting part of my role because while I'm focused on 
you know, the energy for, you know, to operate our data centers, um, you know, just because of where I sit in the industry, I also do get to get involved in a lot of these other issues and how are we thinking about this as a company and, and the opportunity. Um, you know, as we've sort of been alluding to all along, you know, we need, uh, we need a new type of grid, right? We need a grid that um, is, is interactive, where we have markets that support, you know, new technologies, and you know, there's there's sort of two barriers to that. One is the technology, right? Deploying whether it's and get into the whole debate about whether it's about deployment or about bringing you know step changes in technology. But it, it's a technology solution on one hand, uh, but it's also software, right? It's about you know how do we develop the right sort of software architecture so that markets can evolve. I mean, one of the limitations we have in developing, say, new products for flexibility is you know, we have to have a better way of assessing things like participation. You know, how, you know, how are we evaluating the value that, say, a you know, power wall in someone's garage is bringing to the grid? Um, how do we compensate them for that? Um, and that's a, that's a data challenge um, that, that we have. Um, in, in some ways, I, I think the software side might be the easier part of it. Um, you know, how, how we then evolve markets around that software or around not the software itself, but the intelligence we can gain. The, the, the ability to visualize uh, what's happening on the grid. Um, that's really where we see the opportunity as a company. You know, how do we work with utilities, grid operators, and other partners to help them better understand uh, the, the grid as an organism, as, as sort of a, not this, um, in some ways, this simple um, uh, machine that we created over the last hundred years, although it's, it's elegant and it's beautiful in so many ways, um, we're really just, you're just really managing hundreds, maybe if not thousands of different points on a system. Now we're talking about potentially millions of different points on a system that need to be integrated and, and optimized in some way. I mean, that orchestration uh, is an enormous challenge uh, for us if we're going to get to the level of deep decarbonization that we need to see. Has the fact that big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence, all these other buzzwords have, have taken such a um, a position at the forefront of the minds of companies like Microsoft has that made electricity sexier to you guys as a as a company? Because you know electricity being one of the probably handful of sort of existing markets in the U.S. that generate like crazy amounts of data, and now with the addition of all these new resources, present all these new challenges and opportunities. Has it elevated the role that electricity or more broadly energy plays within Microsoft, or is it is it still sort of a point solution? No, it absolutely has. I mean, there's no doubt uh, that electricity is is way sexier today than it was ten years ago. Um, and you know, as a as a lifelong electricity guy. Uh, it's exciting for me to see that, you know, people start to think that our industry is a little bit sexy. Um, and a lot of it is, is because of the, um, really the, the, the radical transformation that new technology is driving in the industry. Um, you know, if you go back, you know, over the 115 years of history of the electric grid, you know, there was never a time that is where, where technology, both the, the hardware, um, and the software, is driving the sort of transformational change that we're seeing today. Um, and so, yeah, it, it really is an area where, you know, five years ago, if I'm walking around the halls of Microsoft and talking to people, uh, what people were excited about was, you know, transportation, buildings, you know, how can you, you automate, you know, you know, those assets. But today, there's a lot of excitement about electricity because people see that, wow, this is a 
a, a space that is transforming so rapidly. And the foundation of that transformation is going to be data. That's great. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Shell. Well, here we are at the end of another set of good conversations. If you made it here after uh, you know, a significant amount of time, well, then you're passionate about this subject. That doesn't mean the other people aren't passionate, but clearly you got a lot of uh, value out of these conversations. So if you think other people are going to get the same kind of value, then pass a link on, tweet it out, you know, share your favorite quotes from this episode. Um, tell us what you think. You can find me and Shale on Twitter. You can also find the Interchange Show on Twitter as well. It's just at Interchange Show. And, uh, you know, referrals are a really good way to, to get us more listeners, passionate listeners, because if uh, you share your passion with someone else, then chances are good they're going to uh, apply that passion to the show as well. And it just goes on and on and on. You can find us anywhere you get podcasts. So if you're not a subscriber already, please go ahead and, and do so. And that's about it. Shale Khan will be back with me next week. Until then, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.